Hey, this is Michael Emery. Thanks for tuning into the Slow Baja. This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza, handmade in small batches, and hands down, my favorite tequila. Hey, I want to tell you about your new must-have accessory for your next Baja trip. Benchmark Maps has released a beautiful, beautiful Baja California Road and Recreation Atlas. It's a 72-page large format book of detailed maps and recreation guides that makes the perfect planning tool for exploring Baja. Pick yours up at benchmarkmaps.com. Yeah, so quickly, how are things with uh, Macintosh? Well, he seems great. He, yeah. uh, he said he just turned 70 last week wow. and um, looks great. Said he was in uh, San Diego visiting friends and... Um, he lives in La Mission, right? La Mission, yeah. Yeah. So he seems vibrant and terrific and ready to take another long walk or a long kayak or something. It must have been a very interesting interview. I'm really glad you got to see him, talk to him. Well, I've decided... one of the classics. What? Yeah. I've decided much with uh, my opinion on you since our last visit. um, I'm going to be like Johnny Carson and have recurring guests. You'll be a regular guest whenever I can get you on here, and we'll just tell stories. You've got okay. so many stories. I'm so uh, enamored. I'm going to put these guys on. So enamored that you would make time for me on no notice at all. Oh, that's okay. I just happened to, to, to be here. Well, uh, e-viewing, it's a delight for me to be back here with you, microphone in hand. Let's refresh my memory and uh, the Slow Baja listeners. You've been in California quite a while. Since 1945. 1945. When I was York. young, we lived in, on a on a dairy farm right. in New York State. New York State. And uh, so that's where I learned. Oh shoot! So sugar. I'm sorry. I don't have your water bowl filled. The coyotes obviously drank out of his water bowl last night. Keep talking. I'll fill that water bowl. Oh, well, you don't need to do that. You need your own. <laughs> now right. we could start all over again if you want. I'm sorry. It's well, we've weird. got. I've got an editor. <laughs> okay. Take this back to, we were touching on, you came in 1945. Yes. Into beautiful La Jolla, California. Yeah, my dad was in the Navy, and he got transferred out here after he nearly died off of Portsmouth, Maine. He, they, they gave him a converted yacht, because he knew how to, to navigate, gave him a converted not yacht that he then... His job was to try and sink German submarines. That's how desperate we were for people that could know how to do run a ship and navigate and stuff like that. But he nearly died of pneumonia in the freezing cold winter. And in those days before antibiotics, if you had pneumonia, usually by the third time, you'd just plain died. And he nearly did, but he pulled through. And the Navy sent him to San Diego because they didn't want to lose him. And he was quite a mind. Yes, he was. Can yes. you can you spend a few minutes just reminding us about? I hate to shine the the bright spotlight on, but just remind oh, Slow can, Baja. The, you've got well, a glint in your thing. eye and a, a <laughs> smile has come well, over your face and you're giggling. But let, tell us all about your dad. He was extraordinary. Yes, he was. Uh, he had a B.A. in English, I guess, from Harvard, from Yale, and a and a master's degree in. Uh, 
biology or something like that. And then he came, when we came out west, he got his PhD at Scripps. And the oldest oceanographic institute building in the United States is on the Scripps campus. And uh, they tried to tear it down a few years ago, and everybody in the community and the oceanographic said, no, 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 this one we're going to save. But I can remember going up to the third floor and hearing my dad give his, uh, I saw him get it to defend his thesis at, uh, at, at Scripps. And then uh, uh, he was a physical, physical oceanographer, and what interested him was the formations of the bays and the water and different things. But his good friends were um, Carl Hubbs. Fish, Carl Hubbs, yes, and, and Ray Gilmore and Ted Walker, the three ichthyologists of, of uh, Scripps that were famous. And uh, he took them down to look at the, at the whales because the whales— and he was a pilot. He was a pilot, and he, what he did was to study a lot of the ocean from uh, the plane. And uh, so he took them down, and that's where— the consensus of the California gray whale was done from my father's airplane for about 10 years. Yeah, so... Uh, it, there was that aspect. We're just after a census year here. So tell me about what it was like to fly down over the calving grounds of Baja oh boy. and and conduct cool. a census from your father's yeah. airplane. Yeah. Who was who was in the plane? I know you told oh, me you yeah. were in the plane well, in our Carl, last conversation. Well, there was, Put us in the seat next to you and, and tell us what that was well, like. Well, I was in the back back because I just got to slip in on that one. Then there was uh, Earl Stanley Gardner, who was... He wrote a few things yes, about Baja. And he, and yes, yes, and one is the, the Inland Whale. <laughs> Perry Mason is yeah, his and one fame, is one of his but books Baja is was about his love. The Inland Whale, I think they call And And next to him was Laura Hubs, and next then my father up front, and, and Carl uh, Hubs, and he was such a wonderful character. They'd be because what they did was to fly over Scammon's Lagoon every year on the same day, weather permitting, and go over the same leads and then count the whales, and so the so that the error would be roughly roughly the same. And uh, but 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 Carl was an, um, amazing, and and. Uh, President Eisenhower's heart specialist, I can't think of what his name was now, wanted to get the heartbeat of a whale. So he contacted <laughs> Carl Hubbs at Scripps, and, uh, and uh, Hubbs just very clearly said, well, he says, whatever you do, you don't want to corner a, a female about to have a calf or has a calf up a lead in one of those shallow leads because she ain't, she's not going to put up with that. So did he listen? Of course not. So he gets hires a boat, a fisherman or whatever it is, and they go into Scammon's Lagoon, <laughs> and he corners a whale up a lead, you know, does all the things he's not supposed to do. She turned around and came and just about sliced their boat in two. <laughs> just took her tail and just went, Bong! <laughs> just like, just like, just like that. But, and so, then, and then Carl was, he was just an irrepressible uh, spirit very famous from scripts and and if he couldn't figure out exactly where he was he'd say Laura god damn it where are the maps where are the maps Laura god damn it where are the maps <laughs> and then they'd have to figure they were and meanwhile I would see Earl Stanley Gardner very slowly turning around the voice on his hearing aid 
<laughs> so we didn't have to hear Carl yeah. screaming, God damn it, Laura, where are the maps? <laughs> and he told this wonderful story that night at dinner in Los Angeles Bay around the table. He said, well, he said, uh, you know, one time he said, you know, I have a very ordinary look about me. And Gardner you're been, talking about. What? Earl Stanley Gardner. Earl Stanley Gardner. That was Gardner. his line. He was very yeah. ordinary looking. Very, he said, I'm a very ordinary looking man. In fact, I've been told several times that I could work for the FBI because people can't really remember what I look like. <laughs> and that's the kind of person that they always wanted, wanted to have. So he said, well, one day I went in, I had a new dentist, and I went into, after I'd been in a couple of times, every time I went into the dental office, I noticed that my picture was right up there where everybody could see my x-ray teeth and stuff x-rays it said Earl Stanley Gardner and so he asked the doctor he said you know every time I come in my picture is always in the same place and he said oh Mr. Gardner I have to confess you're the first celebrity I have and I just couldn't not put your picture up there I'm so sorry and he said that's okay and then and then but he said let me tell you a funny story about that a very pretty young secretary came in one day and I was working on her teeth and with her mouth open and she well exactly that too Earl Stanley Gardner he said yes she said oh wow well uh uh is 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 he you know big and and tall and she he obviously was thinking of the TV series you know uh, big and, and tall and handsome and, and he said well no no he's and this is the dentist telling this to, story to Gardner no he said he's kind of short oh sure face goes down well I bet he's got beautiful eyes you know Raymond Burr had those big big eyes and he said well no they're kind of small and a little bit close together now this is Earl Stanley Gardner telling us at dinner the story about himself that proceeded in the dialogue so finally she just gets more and more deflated but she said oh well, well I, 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 I'll bet he has this tremendous presence about him and he, and he said, well, no, <laughs> he's the most ordinary little old man you'd ever seen in your life, you know. And this is a story he was telling about himself. Like all really good writers, he was basically uh, a terrific observer. You didn't get much out of that much out of Gardner himself. He saw everything around him, but gave, gave out little. That very, very, very observant man. He always had a little notebook, and he'd whip it out, kind of like Columbo, only, you know, <laughs> if somebody said something interesting, it was going to go in his next book, you see, that right. kind of a thing. Anyway. So, as a young, young woman, you had a pretty extraordinary introduction to a capital A adventure in Baja. You're flying around with luminaries. Your father's a noted uh, scientist. He's a pilot. He's not hanging around with uh, uninteresting folk, let's say. And tell me about what it was like flying in those days. Are you flying in the 50s, early oh, 50s, yes. late 40s? Yes, early 50s. And in fact, one of his favorite from stories, he started with a super cup that he could land in, that he could land in the water. And, uh, and then from then on, okay, so when, when he had a super cup, one time when he was, he was just by himself with, I think, no, he was just by himself. And I think he'd been surveying, 
He studied the movement of the sand dunes and scammons and, and the rate of movement, because all sand dunes are, and my father's an oceanographer, so all sand dunes are, are a slow motion moving wave that moves with the wind, just slowly moving. Okay, so I guess he'd been down looking at that. Anyway, he's on his way back to L.A. Bay, but he flew over the uh, part, a section of the Pacific coast there. And he looked down and there's an airplane down in the sand. And, and a man waving his arms, waving his arms. He's got these two black Labrador dogs. So dad uh, managed, it was a calm day, and he managed to land his plane. And I don't know what you do when you land in a little super cub. Maybe you lead it like a dog to the beach. I don't know how what he did because I would, wasn't there. Um, but he got out and he, he told it and this guy said, oh my God, thank God you're here. You're here. I didn't know what to do. I've run out of fuel and and uh, I, I I just had to land and and uh, uh, and, and so well, his dad said, well, just, just calm down now, calm down. And the first thing they did was, Dad, you didn't look at the gauge to check for the fuel. You took a stick because you weren't going to want to trust your gauges in the middle of nowhere. So he took a stick and the guy had a fair amount of gas left. And he said, look, you've got enough gas to get to Ensenada or whatever. And uh, uh, so let's, let's get you off. There's enough daylight here and check the oil and everything. Now here, and he said, now look, I land on the sand and stuff like that all the time. This is what I do. I'm an oceanographer and this is what it, now, this is what you need to do. And so he said, you've got to go right between, right next to the surf, but not where the, where the sand is packed at its hardest, not up any higher because the wheels would get stuck in the sand. And I want you to start way, way back, as far as you can get before you hit that dog leg. You said, before you hit that dog leg, you're going to have to be in the air. And he said, and Dad said and calculated, says, yes, you've got, you've got enough runway to do that. Well, the guy was kind of arrogant. He did not, oh, and the other thing you need to do is take air out of your tires. So he wouldn't take the air out of his tires. He didn't back up to the far, far end of the beach. And um, he got in his plane with his two Labrador dogs and just took off. Well, he was a little bit too up high and got stuck in the sand, hadn't taken any air out of the tires. And so when he got to the dog leg, he wasn't in the air. He just went over, oh. ass over tea kettle into <laughs> the water. So Tad runs. He said, well, I'm not going to give myself a heart attack running to there. But when he got there, he saw up came one Labrador, up came another Labrador, and up came the pilot. So he got him back on the land. And uh, so now dad knew he couldn't take uh, the two dogs and the person. So I think what he did was take the two dogs first and drop them off to LA Bay or somebody. And then he came back to pick up the, 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 guy. Pilot, the guy. And uh, No longer arrogant. Yeah, no, it's folks <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean. In fact, and, and so when his dad got him to... I don't know where he took him, San Diego, I don't know. Maybe he took him back to L.A. Bay with the dog. I don't know. I, I don't remember the story that well, darn it. But here's the fun part about it. When Dad dropped him off, I guess he did. I probably took him back to Lindbergh Field 
And he said, oh, he said, I have to be in New York tomorrow. I have to be back. I, I cannot miss this appointment. So dad did fly him back to Lindbergh Field. That's what it was. And I, and I guess he had other people figure out the dog problem anyway. So he got to Lindbergh Field and he, and he said, and he said, uh, well, uh, Dr. Ewing, thank you so much. You, you, you saved my life. And he said, well, why were you in such a hurry to get back? Oh, he also didn't, hadn't made a flight plan. The biggest no-no of all, no flight plan. And he was, this was his supposed vacation. And he said, well, look, he said, you're, after what I tell you, you're probably never going to want to uh, fly with me again. But he says, I'm an American Airlines pilot. <laughs> And I'm due to go to New York. Tomorrow they're going to teach me how to fly the new jets. You know, in those days it was all DC-64, whatever they were, propeller things. And, and uh, my father looked at him and he said, Young man, on the contrary, I would be honored to fly with you again because now I know what you know that you didn't know before. So dad was very gracious about that. But but every time he got on an American airline pilot or an airplane, he checked to see who the pilot was. Well, th so, things were a little different in Baja in those days. Oh, there yeah. were a lot of adventurous fellows flying the, around. Yeah. And what was that like, that fraternity of pilots, when you would f well, fly it, and it was, see somebody else's plane there? That must have been so exciting. Yeah, well, in in, uh, in Los Angeles Bay, uh, the... the, the uh, Airfield was in sort of in the middle of town. It was the main yeah. main road in town in front and of the I hotel. And I can remember one time it was, uh, well, at one time we were trying to land, and, and at this, this point my father had a converted Grumman Widgeon, which was a amphibious, big amphibious plane, um, two, two big engines, and a uh, converted Grumman Widgeon. They, they converted Grumman Widgeons in a place in Portland, near Portland, Oregon. So he picked up one of those. And then he could land in Scammons Lagoon when they were ca counting the whales. He could he could land and then he wanted to go and measure the sand dunes. He could go and find his markers and all kinds of things like that. Here we were trying to land one evening and we had to get down. And, and Dad couldn't get the, the gear to go down. The gear is pilot talk for the wheels. Sure, yeah. And so he gave me a broom handle and he said, Eve, I want you to unscrew that plate right there and take this broom handle and push the wheels down until they lock. And, I mean, my eyes were as big as grapefruit. I was scared to death. Dad just was, he managed to stay cool through all this kind of thing. And and uh, so, and if the winds were ro really blowing badly, and he had given Antero Diaz a, a shortwave radio so that's let's talk about that you told oh, me that yeah. a little bit about that the last time and i saw the radio in person in in february when, i was there it's still, still in the office yeah and and enteros so i'm yeah. not sure how many sons entero had but i met entero i wonder if and oh that well then that is chubasco okay, i think chubasco. his youngest son was uh chubasco yeah. So he was glad to know that Bill, you were still alive. Oh, well, I'm glad to know that he's still alive. I'm so glad to know. And I really want to get down there sometime and, and talk to them about the turtles and the dinners yeah. and the, oh. what things were like when people like your dad oh. would just fly in and land yeah. right on the main road and it was a party. Yeah. And and uh, and and as I said, the airfield was in the middle of town. Hey, uh, sugar, sugar, he's deaf. He won't. That's all right. He's okay. Okay. No, he might kick stuff on your camera, man. <laughs> we'll hide that right there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, what I was getting to is the fraternity 
of pilots, and your father gave the first shortwave land-based shortwave radio to Antero Diaz, who Papa Diaz, who yeah. ran the the hotel in in yes. Bahia de los Santos. Right. He was essentially he the, been, the mayor and the fixer, and he yeah, was the guy. He was, what he has, what who he was was the assayer for the Las Flores gold mine, which was that big, big gold mine just south of town a little bit. And they had a little short railroad that went up part of Cerro Manila to wherever the gold mine stuff was going on. I guess, I don't know whether it may be, anyway, somewhere up in there. And he and so he just stayed there after uh, the gold mine thing petered out and whatever. And, uh, and he was a very smart man and, 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 a, and a decent guy. And what he would say to my dad, if he was, his way of telling my father, the winds are really gusty, you might not be able to land. He'd say, Gif, you be real careful. He said, you be real careful, Gif, because if you're not real careful, the wind's blowing hard, I'm going to get my chicken coop. Because he wanted to make a, a chicken coop out of a plane, <laughs> plane right? plane that landed, it crashed, and I, he finally did get he one finally years got ago. One? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, of course, the field is out at El Gringo. It's far, a little further out of, out of town. But they were great friends, and I believe... The paint, the, for, for, for a long time, my father's photograph was there with standing. In fact, I think I was standing next to him. Uh, and, but Charles Lindbergh went down there at some point, I believe. And, and so, uh, of course, that was a famous thing to, to have happen. Well, tell us a little bit about the, the turtle dinner. I mean, oh, the now turtle again, dinners. let's acknowledge oh, nobody eats God. turtle anymore. No, or we it's don't. Not, it's not a But a, he had a, a corral. And what they would do is they would go out and catch the turtles and then bring them in and put them in this warehouse shelter till they got a, a truckload full. I don't know how many that would be. And then Sammy, Sammy Diaz, who at 12 years old, 12 years old, drove the turtle truck to Ensenada, to the turtle steak, factory. big steak bed truck, yes, right? Yes, it's not a little something. pickup truck. Yeah, it's whatever. No, Sammy took the truck and, and would take the load. The other thing they did was they would serve Borrego sheep for dinner. And Antero told us that night, he said, you know, he said, most embarrassing thing that happened to me, I went out to get a, uh, to get a mountain sheep for the restaurant and for our the use the family and I went out there and oh there was one right by the water hole so I took my rifle out and shot him and before I could uh, before I could even get there uh, he said up oh. he popped I said my god I got him what 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 do you mean He's, he popped up so took his gun again he shot him again and he was just about to put his rifle down and go and pick up the sheep and up popped the same sheep he said what the hell and so this happened five times he couldn't figure out what so finally he went over there when no more sheep were popping up and what he was embarrassed to find is that he had killed five Borrego sheep at the water hole. It wasn't just one. His gun was nothing wrong with his gun, nothing wrong with his aim. It was just so embarrassing. So we used to have uh, 
Uh, oh, and then and then tutuava was a famous fish that was delicious there, and um, we'd have tutuava, turtle, borrego. Was the turtle was the turtle party every Saturday, or was it just during a season? That they'd have it. You mean that they would have a the big turtle roast. The big turtle roast. You know, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember that much about that. Uh, I really don't. The other thing he would do is take us out to any of his friends that fly, flying, flying pilots that would would come visit to Isla Raza. Isla Raza is one of those mid uh, rift, mid rift islands that the birds nested on. So they'd go out and they'd gather all of these eggs and they'd have for Easter breakfast they'd have this enormous scrambled egg breakfast for everybody in town <laughs> all these things that are now protected and disappearing and disappeared well in those days it was pretty subsistent so i'm not sure what the greatest effect on it all was but those were those days not those these, were those days those days not these days no in these days there are too many people and not enough game and right. that kind of thing right so um I'd like to transition from what it was like when you were flying around and those sort of adventures. And I think you... he That's how I found out about the Melling Expedition. Dad had just flown in. I think he had either maybe Carl Hubs or Ray Gilmore, one of the whale counters with him, uh, flew into L.A. Bay for the evening. And, and here were these people that had ridden mules down from Takati. And uh, uh, some of them had just had it. The winds, they, it was one of those years where they got the vientos del norte the north winds chased them kathy and her her kathy said one of the people on the trip she said either you raised your coat up so the wind wouldn't howl down the back of your neck and then the back of your waist would get cold and then you'd pull your jacket down <laughs> and that was it he said for a month the wind never stopped until they got to la bay and trying to cook and plan trying to cook a meal at night you have 10 people and some guides and all these animals and you have to make dinner and you have to make tortillas and the smoke is flying everywhere and you can't keep a fire going. Shit, it was just hard and tiring. So what I remember from your telling me this tale is that basically everybody got off the ex expedition. Well, a lot of people did not. Well, let's see who did. His, his, Joanne, uh, his wife or girlfriend. Well, there was Joanne Alford stayed. Reed Morin, the botanist from the Natural History Museum, who wanted to collect plants from the highest peaks in the peninsula. And he did, and found San Diego chaparral on, on the uh, Tres Virgenes volcano, for Pete's sake. We hiked up. That was, that was one fun part of that expedition. We took mules partway up that lava mountain and tied them up, and then we just hiked. In those days, by then, we were really in pretty good shape. I bet. <laughs> and and uh, Reed collected, you know, manzanitas, sh chamise, and juniper, and all this stuff, you know, you find in San Diego County. Was, he found the southern limits for all kinds of plant species that had nobody knew they were that far down. And that's when they realized the mountains of Baja were isolated islands left over from the Pleistocene, where pine trees and junipers that used to be everywhere slowly just moved up the mountains to this tiny little spot near the top where they'd get enough rain. Amazing. 
amazing. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of rain on that, that None. Expedi- uh, expedition. The, the that Melling was a family begged Andy, don't go down this year. It's 1961? 63, 64. 63, 64, sorry. And begged Andy, don't, whatever you do, don't go on the trip this year. It hasn't rained for four years. And it was true. We, we, and and, uh, the only way that they could do the expedition, they they had spent so much time preparing for it, they really couldn't wait another year. Joanne had taken time off from work. She was... Miss Queen Space Aeronautics. A kind of a glamour gal, right? Yeah, kind of a little little glamour gal. Very, very cute little gal who'd never seen the front or end, back end of a, a mule, but she and Andy fell in love. She got somehow up at the yeah, Anyway, so they, we had our geologist, Scott Macbeth, who collected uh, rock samples. Um, Reed Morin, who had a couple of big plant presses. That, that And that night we would have to dry his plants out that he collected, sort of sitting around the fire. He'd dry his plants out and put them back in the presses and stuff. And so there was Scott Macbeth, and, and the people that left were a guy named McFarland. Sensible. And um, the two photographers from Brooks Institute left. The, the movie photographer and the still photographer left. And... I don't remember who the other people were, but everybody there. So it was just uh, Reed, Scott, and myself, Wayne Lang, Kathy Barton, Andy, and and we still had all these uh, uh, animals. But because it was a drought year, that means you couldn't hobble your animals because a hobbled mule can go a long ways in one night. And on top of that, you couldn't let them uh, for the first three weeks they would always be trying to go home finally they gave up about trying to go home so at night when they pulled into a camp and they would always they would never camp at a water hole if they could help it because all of the grass around all the mesquites everything had been eaten around uh, the water hole Mailman. It's mailman. <laughs> Sugar Bear went on one of my next to my last mule trip, rode in back of my, put a special pad in back of the mule. My mule was a great big strapping mule, macho, and he knew his mule in the morning. He'd go and stand by his mule. And Sugar Bear would ride right up there with you. Right there behind me, right. That's a beautiful sight. And Trudy had her cute little dog, Lucky. Yeah, I have a photo of that on my phone. You have Lucky. Okay, so this was a trip. And she she let me bring Sugar because she had Lucky. (laughs) So so, take us back to the the Melling expedition, 1963-1964. It hadn't rained for four years. Yeah. And your mules, you can't let them go at night to find their own forage. Well, you can't, you can't, okay. Yes, you can. In fact, that is what you have to do. But first of all, you're not going to try and camp at the water hole because all the food within a day's walk of that water hole or day or two walk from that water hole would have been just gone. Right. So you'd have to then go in between that waterhole and the next waterhole that you that your guide says you're going to run into and that's where we would be camping and uh, that meant we'd we'd have to carry the water we'd have to fill up at the waterhole but then move on to someplace else and then yes that's when Andy would have to turn out all the mules just turn them loose 
There was nothing to eat, so they had to scrounge for themselves. There weren't enough mesquites for them to tie a mule and cut it and cut branches down for it. You know, there was just so that meant the next day he and Ramon, his guide, would have to cut tracks and bring out this whole ten, I don't know, six, eight riding animals and ten pack animals. So for the slow Baja listeners who don't know what it means to cut tracks, they track their own mules to recover them every day. Every day. Imagine how slow that must have been. It was. We never got off before 10 o'clock in the morning. And in order, when when we got down to the south, like around Mulahay and further south, when it started to get so hot, by in in May it can get so hot down there, and uh, so what we'd have to do, Kathy and I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and we'd make the tortillas and and make the uh, tacos for for lunch, but we'd get up at four. I couldn't make a tortillas again to save my life, but for years I knew how to make a tortilla. So Kathy and I got up at four o'clock long before anybody else did. And the thing about Kathy that was kind of amazing is she was married to a helicopter helicopter pilot who was in the Pacific on some big ship. And uh, so this she was amusing herself while while her husband was out to sea. And eventually she married Andy Melling, but that's another long story how that got got there. So but Kathy and Reed would love to stay up in the evening around the campfire with the guitar and, and sing folk songs and stuff. So they were both night owls, but Kathy would still get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. She said, okay, I'm going to be getting up at 4 o'clock Eve every morning with you, but t- let me tell you this, don't anybody speak to me before 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but that was the only way we could get off by 8 o'clock. And by then, you already wished you'd been on the trail for a couple of hours. Because it's hot. Because it's hot. It's hot. Yes. And I literally had to stop by 11 o'clock in the morning and then not pack up and start again until about 4 in the afternoon. Now, which which one of the women had the snake on her in in the morning? And didn't move. Oh, oh, that was, you thought that everybody was, thought she was sleeping in late, but she had a rattler on her. <laughs> she did, but that was that was no, that was my friend Nan uh, from Scripps Oceanographic. Uh, another of, trip. A, another a trip you out know, to so, Anza Borrego. Desert. So many mule trips to Baja. Yeah, yeah. Can you can we just transition here and tell me about? Can you estimate how many mule trips you've taken to Baja? I stopped counting after my 50th mule trip somewhere along. I just stopped counting them. (laughs) Let's put it this way. I sat on my ass for about 50 years, (laughs) literally, and and just all I wanted, I wanted to see the places that we heard there might be rock art, but we didn't know. And take me back to that moment. Was that with the Melling expedition that you first saw rock art, or yes. had you seen it before? No, I had not seen it before. It was with the. Well, here we're three quarters of the way through our afternoon chat with Eve Ewing in Slow Baja, and we're getting right on to your, what became your life's obsession. Yes, yes, my life's obsession. You know, we can't wait to drive our old Land Cruiser down to Baja, and when we go, 
we go with Baja Bound Insurance. Their website's fast and easy to use. Baja Bound Insurance, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. Hey, do you have a 4x4? You love off-road racing? You got to join Slow Baja in the Nora 500. It's Ensenada to Ensenada 3 great days October 7th through 10th. Kurt LaDuke, Off-Road Hall of Famer, leads the class. If we can do it in our old truck, you can do it. Get your street legal 4x4, get into the safari class, and I'll see you in Ensenada. More info at Nora.com, that's www.norra.com, or on Slow Baja. It started on the Melling trip, and I can remember when. I even know the day it started. It's one of those moments that just, it still, it still brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. We left, this was um, the last quarter of, of between Takati and, and La Paz. Uh, and we were in a ranch where the only way we could get out of the valley, we had to, we had hurt, there was nothing for the animals to eat. Can you imagine? In the Magdalena Plains, where we were going through, the dust bowls in the Magdalena Plains. And there were goats in, up in all of the mesquite trees because everything that had been close to the ground had been eaten. So the goats have learned to climb trees by now. Yes, yes. The goats were in the trees. And the cattle were starving. They were all just starving. Our mules were starving. Some of them did starve. And it was just a, a really, a really tough time. The Magdalena Plains. But one of the ranchers told Andy, oh, one of the ranchers told Andy, uh, he said, uh, and, and it was it, it was when we, the same day that we ran into um, a guy with, um, uh, what's that famous skin disease that the, that the Molokai Island uh, was leprosy. leprosy. We ran into a leper. And uh, there were a few. And Kathy was the first one to, uh, to she was up front that day. And um, the guide and Kathy were up front and Andy and the packer were always repacking mules in the back. And um, we rounded a corner. I was right behind there too. And we scared that man nearly to death because Kathy had a black felt hat. In the wintertime, that was a good thing to have when it was cold, but it wasn't a good thing to have when we got further south and it got hot. And she had a black bandana around her face and a black hat, and she scared the leper to death, the poor guy. And he said he had leprosy and his family brought him food, and they had him isolated out there. And um, where were we going with that we're talking well you about, were you were telling oh, oh, about the oh, first time that you saw the, the paintings we had to go over the mountain to get what the, that ranch told us uh because that young man was a part of the main ranch but he was off by himself and they said well we heard that there was a, a thunder squall on the other side of the sierra gigantes that had rain down near the coast and from and so and that was the uh, uh, Picacho. Boy, I don't have my atlas with me. Anyway, uh, to get up to get across the Sierra Gigantes, we had to crawl out of this canyon we were in, 
get up on the top of a mesa and then long near the near the spine of that mountain and then down the other side to get to the spot that had the dry hay from a thunderstorm that just dry grass is the word I'm looking for okay we went up the trail that we took our mules up was really a hand-cut Indian trail and you could see the flakes of obsidian flakes up and we were of course on foot because this was basically a person trail but we led our mules and they had cut sort of crude steps so you could get up to the top there and up at the top there were sleeping circles and things and then the trail just kind of went off and on and you come by an old campsite that had a metati and here were spear points komondu style big spear points and a metati and a mono or stuff and it was just as though somebody had left to go back to camp for to go back somewhere and pick up something except it was a couple hundred years ago when they left it was a couple of hundred years ago yeah. and and it, and that they had left and but that feeling of somebody can come by any any minute any minute somebody is going to come by was um, it was very very poignant because it's exactly what happened probably some Indian went from there to, let's say, the San Luis Gonzaga mission, which wasn't too far on the Pacific side, um, and got measles and never came back. But that haunted me, That those empty campsites, that they just haunted me. And then the first time I saw cave paintings was on the, that Melling expedition. We, were the, we didn't know it at the time. We were the first outsiders outside of a local rancher to see the Natividad. We were trying to get into the great mural painting sites of Cueva Pintada and uh, Fletch's. But Andy said, the country is so rugged, we have to make up our mind. We either go and see these cave paintings or we go to Cabo San Lucas, but the animals can't do both. They're too hungry, they're too worn out. There's no, not enough feed. We can't do it. So everyone decided they wanted to go to Cabo, which meant at that point we were on one of the three main El Camino Reals. There was one on the Pacific side. There was one that, that uh, uh, went like from El Bateque and well, you went from San Ignacio to Arroyo Paral, and then you went from there to uh, Mono Alto and, and up and over. But and then the one on the Gulf side went to, from San Ignacio to Rancho Rosarito, which had a well, or Rosalito, I can't remember exactly. It had a well, and okay. And then the third trail went right up through the spine. So if you had a Pacific winter storm come in, you could take this Pacific trail on the, on the west flank. If you had a Chubasco come in and bring you wet, rains from the summer, you could then often take the lower east route. If you didn't have either, then you'd just go right up over the spine because that's the most likely spot a little bit of rain would have been left. So and there'd the El, be food and for the, your animals. Yeah, and the El Camino Real went through great petroglyph fields like San Esteban. That was a magnificent petroglyph field. 
and Trudy Angel's guide, main guide, Chema Arce, eventually in um, recent years built a ranch up there, built his house with big slabs of slate uh, rock, hardly any wood in, in the house, it's a couple of houses he built up there, but it went right through a major petroglyph field because the major petroglyph field was near Otinaha that was pretty dependable. And uh, uh, I, I can't remember where we were going with that. Well, we were talking about you seeing these these oh, the paintings, painting the sites and then how it became your life's obsession, honestly. And you made multiple trips over decades back trying to sort this out yes well the and and when we saw the paintings at, at natividad and of course here's the the, the the joke carrie crosby has on me about this is that our guide uh knew about natividad but he thought he was going to be taking us into the san uh arroyo san pablo to see the big paintings cueva pintada cueva fleches cueva soledad and that's what he knew when we said, we have to go back, we can't do this. So then he made a left turn. We got to see the Natividad paintings. And there were, there were things like um, shamans, pipes on the ground, and big spear points. I mean, nobody had messed with it. Matatis all over the place. Nobody had messed. And these wonderful paintings of the deer leaping up and out, up and out, up and out. But this guy didn't know the country that well, but he knew he could get us to the east flank El Camino Real and get us back to San Ignacio to head south again. But we went right past El Batequi, which is on the uh, cover of uh, Crosby's first book, I guess, first couple of books. And it is the most beautiful of all the painting sites because it's on surface that didn't erode easily. It was smooth lava, beautiful. And it's a procession. In fact, what I'm working on right now is that whole aspect of the great mural art in so many examples was processional art. Let me see if I can go. Honey, honey, no barking, no barky. No more barky, no barkies. Come on, guys, I know, it's too much fun. So you're talking about the procession yes. in the art. Yes, Explain and, that to me. Well. What what I've what I've found out when and with with uh, Ken Hedges from the, who was the curator of Museum of Man took us on several uh, trips of the Museum of Man on Easter field trips and one was to Sears Point and he showed us a an example of what was called a one pole ladder and he explained that the ladders were like an axis mundi a spirit path that goes connects the earth and the sky world, the Indian concept. And so that, he said, is typical of great mural, of, excuse me, typical of hunter-gatherer art. So I'm down in Baja, and I'm looking at, I don't know, maybe the fifth time I've been down to the great painting sites in Pintada, and I'm saying to myself, well, where is the ladder? Where is this, you know? And then I saw it. I saw hands and feet of animals and people touching a vertical crack. That was the Axis Mundi, but it was using a natural rock formation, but it was doing the same thing. And what I found is that the major 
processional art sites, the ones that have this procession of charging animals like El Batecchi, San Gregorio I, Cueva Pintada South Gallery, um, the Serpent Cave, they all are the final crescendo of this movement is a vertical crack that goes skyward. Amazing. What is that all about? What is that? I mean, you look at San Gregorio I, and Harry Crosby catches it so well. I've often said, gosh, Harry, you really got it well. Harry was the first outsider, the famous Harry Crosby, who wrote the, the great mural, the, the paintings, rock art of right. Baja California. And he's now in his 90s. Mid and he lives right over here. Yes, I mean, it's so yes, funny it that the two of you could be that that devoted to this subject and being practically neighbors. Yeah. Well, I was working at John Cole's bookshop when he came in one day because Barbara Cole, he said, I understand there's a lady that just got back from a milling expedition and I've just been contracted by the Copley Press to write four books on Baja. One on the King's Highway, one on the rock art, the cave paintings and the people. So I talked to him, went over to his house the next day and I talked to him for about six hours about all the things, the problems we had, all the things that went wrong, all the things that went right. And he thanked me years later. He said, Eve, the best, the best information you gave me is don't go in the mountains without a local guide. Just don't do that. And he because, passed that along to oh, yeah. Edie, Sunbee, Edie Littlefield Sunbee and others. Yes, yes. So yes. that's straight from the horse's mouth, so yeah, to speak. Exactly. What because was it? if you don't know, uh, otherwise you're going to be doing stuff like uh, Joanne Alford, who was Andy's partner, when the inter newspaper interviewed her and they said, well, uh, uh, Miss Alford, what are you going to do when you can't find water? Oh, that's easy. You just follow yellow jackets. Oh, my God. Please, I can't tell you how many water holes I've seen, especially in the wintertime. The yellow jackets are hibernating. You're not going to see a yellow jack. When I read that, I thought, these people are going to die. So I never answered the ad to join the milling expedition until my father phoned back Threw from L.A. Bay. It. And I said, somebody knows what they're doing. They're still alive. <laughs> and anyway. you brought them pounds and pounds of powdered eggs and pounds and pounds and of powdered eggs and, and horseshoe nails mostly horseshoe nails and horseshoe yes and uh, uh, I, I eggs yeah powdered eggs I'm trying to think what else and they and he said the, the instructions were bring your saddle have tapaderos put on it taps or the leather coverings on the covers. front of the stirrup so the, so the if you, you made a choice of cactus you got a chance <laughs> and then um, bring a big canvas tarp and uh, your sleeping bag and a warm jacket and, you know, and and that's kind of it. We had no tents in those days. You slept we, under the stars. Slept under the stars, but what, they, what he had was enormous, big, uh, water-repellent canvas tarps. And you'd lay one out on the ground, and you'd put your sleeping bags in a row, and then you'd fold it like... A big blanket over you. A big tortilla. Up, uh, right. Yeah, like you're a living tortilla. And would your head be on your saddle or your, uh, sometimes, your blanket or some, what? Sometimes, um, uh, sometimes if it was if it was really windy or something, but usually the tarp went over the top of us. And we stayed amazingly. And we were down there for six months, and I think 
the biggest rainstorm we had was a 10-minute sprinkle. Yeah, tough year. Tough year. And when we got into Tacho Arce's ranch, Tacho Arce was Harry Crosby's famous guide. He was the local mountain man that right. I said, don't go in the mountains without a, uh, a mountain guide. And he had, it was, of course, spent his life in those mountains, knew where all the painting sites and stuff were. And Or if he didn't, he would talk to the local rancher we went into, and their kids that have to go out and find the goats would know where the painting sites were. And, uh, and he said it had not rained on his ranch for six years. Amazing. No appreciable rain for six years. Now that's the difference between Baja and the mainland. What made Baja California different is it was the only territory of Mexico that was still hunter-gatherer, except for the island of Tiburon, where the Seri, that's it. The rest of Mexico was agricultural. What the hell is that? It's just recently, I understand it now. It was about maybe 10 years ago, we began seeing satellite photos on our TVs at night. And the satellite photos would show you where the, where the thunderstorms were collecting. And isn't it interesting? Not very often in Baja. No. When it did, there were the high peaks. Or sometimes you would see something really strange. You'd see what looked like a stream of water clouds coming down from Sonora and crossing the peninsula a little bit. And what's on that side? the Sierra San Francisco, where the greatest of the grave paintings are. So what we've had, what was at the other end of that was the highest peak in the Sierra Occidental. And now we know uh, for monsoon rains to come, it takes four days of the temperature and pressure at a certain point. And then when the monsoon hits it, boom, it comes that fast. Eleni Moore experienced it. She was uh, looking at rock art, and, you, and Harry said you could never get a cowboy to camp in the in the Royal in the summertime. Too dangerous. Yes, because you can have beautiful blue skies right above you, and then the and rain way comes. up at the top of the mountain, Cerro Agua Verde, the tallest mountain in the in the Sierra San Francisco, can rain like hell, and then you know, well, That's how Mexican pebbles get made. How Mexican pebbles get made. <laughs> All those rocks tumbling down. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was a, a very exciting phenomenon that it could happen that fast. Well, but here's the thing. We now know that that monsoonal system, part of which comes from the Gulf of Mexico, joins up which comes from the Gulf of California, moves northward into the Hopi, Sunni, Pueblo country. And that's how they could grow corn. Corn has to be grown with summer rain and heat none of which is any place in the Californias, except a little bit along the Colorado River where the Mojave people, uh, which were human-speaking peoples, raised a little bit of, of corn. So, okay, so what happens with Baja? You'd, you'd see day after day, or you'd be sitting on the porch at Casa Diaz, and you'd be looking across the Gulf, and all these thunderstorms way over there, and lightning, and but nothing in my what the hell's going on what's going on is the pacific ocean that japanese current 
that comes down from the Aleutians and slams into Malarimo Beach, which is the big Punta Eugenia left, right, you know, turn that goes out to sea. That's the end of the California current. Boom, that's it. That's where all the ships crashed and piled up and big logs from the uh, Oregon and everything from around the Pacific ends up on the beach. And Sand Island, and that's why I wanted to have you talk to Liesl Munoz. Uh, she explored and, and how she nearly she nearly died in one of her expeditions. Uh, but you go talk to Liesl. She's really wait. something else. Yeah. I can't wait. Well, we've you've been very generous with your time. We're going to wrap up. Okay. But Another time we'll talk more about oh, the rock. We can't. Art. We can't. Well, let, let me just ask. Do, oh. do, you, do you have an estimate of how many trips you made to see rock art? Because it really did become your obsession, didn't it? Yes, it did. Do you think you figured it out? Uh, I went... For years, I would have one or two in the fall and one or two in the spring, sometimes two or three, sometimes it'd be a month long, trying to go into areas that hadn't really been explored or looked at much. By mule, usually. By mules, right. And uh, Arturo, our head guide, and then we'd get a subcontract, somebody who knew that that country fairly well. but back to just briefly so what so what are these spirit paths doing where are these animals going that are trying running up up the cliffs what what what's going on in my opinion what we've got is a typical early human partnership built between the animal world and the people world and the humans at this point, they, have, they are no longer worshiping animals only, like they were in the Paleolithic in the caves of Europe, where you see giant bison and elephants and rhinoceros and all these creatures, but you don't see any people. Well, all those animals were stronger than the people. Little by little, humans' intelligence managed to give them some kind of, of an edge. Um, but uh, so the state that Baja was in was that by then human beings like a powerful chief would be, he would be the orchestra leader. And in my opinion, what we're looking at is a system of reciprocity. The sheep and the deer were contracted in a way to go up and call down the rain And if you're an old, powerful shaman, and you used to go up to Agua Verde and maybe pray for rain, and now you are an old man, and yet you're still powerful, and you still want to help your people, what you going to do? Now, I'm making up a story that I have no evidence for, okay? But the research that I have with analogous cultures tells me how these, these systems of reciprocity work. So the story I tell myself is that the deer and the sheep were contracted to carry the water world back up to the sky world to bring back the rain. Where do we get this from? Susan Cole's famous book from the Hopi, I think it was the Hopi or the Sunni, I I don't have that on my fingertip. The belief that if you have a taken animal from the water world up to the sky world, you can bring back the rain. For example, Russell's book on the mythology of the Yaki, 
and the the there's a story where the Apache came and stole the rain clouds from the Yaquis. They were historical enemies from way way back and prehistoric enemies, and so they were all starving. It hadn't rained. They're all dying of thirst, and nothing's happening. So they send different animals to go back and bring back the rain. Nothing's working. Birds don't. Nothing's working. Finally, Toad pops up and he says, "Guess what?" I can make it rain. He said, what do you mean you can make it rain? You're just a toad. That's right, I'm an animal, a water animal. If you can get me up there, I'll bring back the rain. And they said, well, why don't you just go do that? And he said, well, I can't get up there. I can't fly. Bat says, hey, guy, I'll take you. So Bat takes toad up to the sky and they negotiate with the gods and they bring back the rain. Now, I think what we're looking at is a Baja California version of that ancient belief system of, in fact, um, the Papago Indians have a, uh, the, the man that wrote, um, I can't think of his name, I, I should have my notes with me, uh, but anyway, a famous story of a Papago chief, and he takes a bowl of water from the spring and he hikes a little way up the hill and he pours and empties the bowl down out on the ground. That is again the same symbolism of carrying the water back up to the sky world. The system of reciprocity is you don't get something for nothing. If we give you all this rain, what are we getting back, you know? So I think that the Indians in their desperation for consistency of which they had none of in the weather world in Baja because it was in between the tropics, in between the temperate zones, and everything pulled back and forth. You'd get flooding rains from the north or flooding rains from the south or nothing from either. So they had a very unpredictable latitudes to work with to try and, and stabilize. But one thing you can't live without is hope. So let's send, let's let's have this party every year, and we'll all get together, and we'll paint these paintings, and we'll talk to the gods, and we'll get the deer, and I and imagine the deer and saying, well, why in the hell should I go up there and help you? Y you know, you're going to eat me anyway. What the what the hell is that for? And then you get the chief. I'm making this fun story up. Um, well, look, let's negotiate here a minute. You're old, and you're getting arthritic, and you don't want to run up and down everywhere. But we, humans, with the proper ritual, will bring you back to life. That's what the Indians believed, that they never killed the game, that they could always, it would always be reborn. So you can say to that old ear, look, go on up there and ask for rain. And he'll say, well, what the hell for? I'm old and tired. I don't want to go up there. But just think about this. We're going to ring, bring you back to life. Wouldn't you like to have something to eat when you get back down here, if we bring you back? Now, there's inklings of truth in what I'm saying in the anthology from other cultures and looking at the art itself and what it's trying to tell us and how it relates to the marine mammals. You often see deer and fish together or sheep and fish together. They're taking up the power of the water world with them. It's Conda, Cueva Condolati. They're wonderful. The arms of the, of the deer, look in Harry Crotty's Peace Book and look up Cueva Condolati. You'll see the arms of that fish, of that 
deer is a fish reaching straight up. And then you see, I've got a lot of photographs in some isolated caves where the fish are right under the, the deer's belly. It's almost like they're, this is the deal, you know, we've got to get the water back up to the water world. So I think it's a system of reciprocity and it's a passionate interconnectedness, working, a working relationship of together we'll bring back the rain, together we're going to make it work, together we can do this. Wow, that's a powerful message and we're going to leave it right there. Okay. Eve Ewing, you're the best. Really, Thank I'm you. so thrilled that uh, you made some time for me today, oh, and I can't wait to uh, see you again and get some more Baja memories and stories. Okay. All right, thanks. Slow Baja's wardrobe is provided by Taylor Stitch. Responsibly built for the long haul, Taylor Stitch makes clothes that wear in, not out. Wherever your adventure takes you, Taylor Stitch has you covered. Check them out at taylorstitch.com. Hey, you guys know what to do. Please help us by subscribing, sharing, rating, all that stuff. And if you missed anything, you can find the links in the show notes at slowbaja.com. I'll be back before you know it. And if you want to receive notices on new episodes, please follow Slow Baja on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for you old folks. <laughs>